My name's Laura and today is the uh, 16th of September 2020. The interview is taking place via Zoom. Um, to get us started, uh, I'd like to know a little bit about you and your background. Um, so could you tell me your name and the year that you were born? Yeah, my name's Douglas T. Stewart and I was born in the town of Belsill in 1964. Perfect. Um, so what is your background? What was it like growing up in Bells Hill? Um, I came from Bells Hill, which was a sort of ex-mining and steel town. Um, when I was very young, I guess these industries were still pretty much alive. But by the time I was reaching my uh, pre-teens and early teens, all these industries were dying. And um, you were actually, uh, I guess the first time I was experiencing uh, the notion of people seeming completely lost and um, without hope. Um, I had friends whose fathers killed themselves after being made redundant. I think that was an era where a lot of particularly males from a working class background defined them so much and they're priding themselves by what we did in work. And so when I was gone, their identity felt like it maybe been taken away from them and their ability to be, I guess, in that era, what was considered to be um, male had sort of been robbed. Probably that time there was much more definition in the idea that males were these kind of tough, you know, almost hunter-gatherer figures, you know, who went out and provided for the family and were strong and steady and didn't fall apart emotionally. Uh, but I guess, uh, as it was for a lot of people, the late 70s and early 80s became a very difficult time, which um, shook a lot of people. And um, at the time, I, you know, my life felt very pleasant. My father wasn't really affected by this sort of thing. Um, I came from a family that weren't typically, um, we were very much working class, but we'd kind of um, a lot of interests and we weren't interested in things like drinking culture and football culture and I guess kind of, sectarian stuff which defined a lot of uh, the culture surrounding me um so i wasn't really affected about stuff but definitely it was interesting becoming aware of that and aware of the idea of people who i'd seen and who seemed perfectly normal and quite every day had done something as drastic as taking their own life so i think that did, um, even though I maybe wasn't that aware of it at the time, I, I think, thinking back, it certainly had an effect on me. Um, do you remember people ever mentioning mental health around that time, or was it kind of um, when these men sadly took their own lives, was it more of a, a kind of swept under the carpet kind of thing? I think in most cases it was very much sort of almost like 
swept under the carpet. Well, my sister, who was three years older than me, two of her friends um, had ended up having mental health issues uh, later on in high school. And I think the kind of background um, that I kind of came from, particularly, I'm sure it would have been an issue in a lot of different types of backgrounds, but that kind of West of Scotland working class background um, maybe wasn't the best place for people to feel that they could talk about things that were worrying them and causing them pain um, and kind of self-doubt and things like that. So, yeah, a couple of my sister's friends um, who I knew and liked um, ended up having to drop out of school for a while and go to hospital and I don't really, I never really found out the details. Um, but it was that sort of thing of even years later, it was like, oh, she was never the same again. Sort of, you know, notion. And um, I guess some of these people's uh, things that might have been seen as vulnerabilities were probably some of the things that made these people attractive and likable because they were kind and sensitive and looked at the world um, in, a, in maybe a slightly different way than the norm. And I found that um, attractive, but I guess it also makes people vulnerable or puts them in a vulnerable position. So... Um, but yeah, it still wasn't something that was talked about a lot. You know, I also could see, thinking back at my dad, um, who was definitely not a touchy-feely sort of a person, very, very kind, incredible sense of justice and fairness, and very open-minded in a lot of ways, which, again, were unusual for environment. You could see that he definitely had times of real darkness, not in anger or anything, but just uh, the kind of inner sorrow that he could really go into, you know. So when was the first time you'd say um, that you first became aware of um, mental health and kind of um, it not just being, oh, someone feels a bit sad, um, and kind of hearing those terms in the kind of common common discussions with people? I guess, it, to be honest, it was probably through um, movies. Um, my sister was very, very much into books, and I was very much into movies and television. And, you know, I would start to, um, I guess, in my teens, um, I was aware of these films, but I was probably a little bit young when they were released, but I would see films like uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and um, I would see films that maybe uh, dealt with issues like race, but there would end up being a mental health element to them. I guess things like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, there's, there's definitely... Um, Characters like Boo Radley, who's you know this kind of mysterious character who's misunderstood and kind of demonised almost, but it kind of turns out you know he's actually a very gentle person who's kind of misunderstood because he has certain mental health issues, 
I don't know when the actual terms were used as mental health, but although I maybe didn't necessarily know always the right words, I knew what it was. You know, it's like, um, it's like, I guess people could laugh, but we don't know what the word laughter is, you know. Um, so I, I didn't have a word. And of course, words are great because in a way they're very liberating because they help you explain, but they can also be very limiting because suddenly, um, you know, it's like the, I, I don't know if this is exactly true or accurate, but something like, you know, the Eskimos will have something like 200 words for snow or something. But it feels like the amount of words we've got to express um, the different kinds of mental health issues, um, unless you're very, very eloquent with your language, doesn't feel quite enough. So sometimes um, if you say certain things, people get a notion of what that means because they're basing it on preconceived notions or previous experience. And every case, of course, and every person is so completely different. So to kind of draw those points together, um, do you think that art can be a really effective way then of um, communicating ideas around mental health because you're not perhaps so limited to uh, simply just language and things like that? Yeah, well, for me, I mean, I think since um, possibly I was around about five, six, music started to have quite a profound effect on me and I would hear music that would make me feel sad, but I liked it. I liked the feeling. And it wasn't just to do with the songs, you know, it wasn't like the, the it was a lyrically necessarily, you know, the, the lyrical content wasn't necessarily the, the primary thing. Very often it would be instrumental music in film and television and it would, it would feel to me that it was saying things that couldn't be said by words alone and so I still I still very much uh, find that and so that was something that um, I wanted to do. People say to me when they talk about my songs, oh, I really like that song you did about that and I'll very often think that the, the lyrics tell part of the story but the thing it tells all the stuff <clears throat> all the stuff it has um, real nuances and depths and colours it is uh, the melody and the arrangement and the choice of sounds and harmony and things like that. These are really the things that I don't see myself. Some people are incredibly clever, eloquent lyricists and poets and um, I take care to the best of my ability in the words that I choose to use. But for me, it's um, it's a bit like, I guess, in a, in a movie, the lighting, the editing, um, and again, the music will say all these things. The characters may be saying something very mundane or, or saying something that's actually misleading to what we really feel in our heart. And the music will clue you in on what's really going on emotionally. And that was something that I gravitate towards music for because I felt although I wasn't technically gifted 
in music. I felt I had a real understanding of that sort of thing and it connected to me. And um, it was a bit like, wow, this connects with me so deeply. I want to connect with other people in that way. Um, so, yeah, for me, it was about communication and making a connection with other, other fellow human beings. Um, and have you found it um, to be useful as a tool for communicating, especially quite um, delicate or perhaps difficult issues um, around mental health or um, anything kind of similar yeah. to that? The, I mean, my most successful song, and I'll define what I mean by successful, because it's not necessarily my favourite song or the song that I listen to with the most pride, but it's a song that, as a professional musician, I've earned the most money from. It's a song that's probably referred to most often when people uh, talk about or write about myself as a musician. So in many ways, it's almost like my signature song, I think a lot of people would consider. It's a song called Serious Drugs, which I wrote in 1991. And... Um, that song, the lyric is very, very simple, but it deals with mental health and it's about um, the serious drugs in question are um, prescribed uh, antidepressive medicine. And uh, it was kind of, it's one of these things that I think there's always a lot of humour in the, well not always, I mean there's some things I can think of in the world that's hard to find the humour, but there's an awful lot of times where something is overall a, a sad event or a troubling event, but there's humour that comes out of it and it's a useful thing, it helps us get through that and also if you're trying to communicate it to someone else, if it's just dry, heavy, dark, they find a bit alienated, but humour can bring him in. And yeah, so I was, I feel I need to put this song into context. I was dating a girl who was a medical student in Aberdeen and um, she discovered, and I can't remember even what the tablets were, but I'd been given these tablets because I was going through a difficult time where I'd lost a lot of money through other businesses going down that I was connected to. Um, they were distributing my records and so I ended up they went bust and I didn't get any money back, I didn't get any stock back, I was under pressure, fellas let people down. So I'd been given these me this medicine and she said to me early in the relationship, you don't need those tablets, you know. You know, my love will cure you, my love will make you feel better. Um, and then cut to a month later, she was like, I think you need some stronger tablets. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that really funny. I mean, it was sort of sad, but almost very often I have a thing where I'm, I look at myself from the outside and although it was kind of sad and poignant and about something quite serious, I thought it was a real humour in it. And I thought, well, that's a story I think would be an interesting little scene in a kind of an imaginary musical. And typically I would think that that would usually be approached as a very dry sober thing but I wanted it to be kind of humorous um, and musically I wanted to give it a musical setting that was very very beautiful and quite seductive and wouldn't alienate people I think um, 
melody and humour. Um, the musician Robert Wyatt, um, I had a conversation with once and he said melody and humour are almost the greatest tools an artist can have because they bypass the intellect and they go straight to the heart. So if you present some song that's got a message and a kind of, I'm an angry young man, I'm an angry young person kind of way, it can be quite alienating. But if you present something with melody and humour, um, you sort of get into their heart, the person's heart, and then they'll stay and then you can actually say things that are quite important. I mean, um, sometimes you would get in the past, you know, the cinema about very dark subjects, but the, 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 the thumbs that usually would move people the most and make them engage would have some element of humour in there, some element of light. And almost without that, I think people would just feel they'd been assaulted. So, yeah, so I like the idea of you can communicate with people, but in a way that doesn't feel like you're going, assault, 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 here's my message. You're going to listen to it. Um, they actually want to listen to it. They want to engage in it. They want to stay in your company. They don't want to start <laughs> walking away and go, okay, then, right, <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think it is. I think it's an incredibly useful tool. I think what's less useful is um, there's almost a, a bit of a romance, um, maybe unintentionally built up, about things like suicidal tendencies and things in rock and pop music but I don't think is necessarily healthy. I mean, I think it's in all the arts and, you know, uh, people like Vincent van Gogh, Sylvia Plath, their, their work is so great, but it's almost, people almost have a notion in their head that by them taking their own life, that makes their work greater. And I would uh, say it, do <laughs> it doesn't. I, I would have loved the twist in the story with Vincent Van Gogh was, you know, the gun didn't work and they had a life-changing epiphany and his, or his brother turned up in time and he went on in these later years to sell a lot of his work and ended up being, you know, having a happy, uh, rewarding time. That would be a much more romantic vision, but I think people almost have in their head or some sort of romance uh, and worth attached to people making the ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, it kind of feels like the um, the sort of tortured artist trope, um, which we do kind of see a lot sometimes in the media itself, like you were saying, whether it's within music or film. Um, how has that been seen kind of by your peers in the in the kind of music scene? Yeah, I think um, I think there's there's different people getting to uh, making music for different reasons, and I do think some people are attracted to what they see as a rock and roll lifestyle, and sort of cliches and tropes to do with that. Things like the hedonistic behaviour, the you know throwing TVs 
out the room, sleeping with as many people as you possibly can, um, taking lots of drugs, uh, doing things that aren't particularly good for you, becoming incredibly caught up in your own um, importance above other people. And yeah, some sort of things like suicidal tendencies. And I think they buy into this. And I do think, unfortunately, I've seen cases where it's almost ended up, it's, it's almost been like, you know, when children play, and I still play as an adult, but a lot of people leave that behind. When children play, you know, they'll be playing, uh, being a teacher, or playing uh, in a class of children, or playing it, being doctors and nurses, or um, soldiers or cowboys or whatever, they sort of act out how they have a notion of these people acting. And I think an awful lot of people when they start making music, it's just initially they're playing at being that. They may not. They may think they're beyond the age of playing, but it's almost like um, they kind of go, "Yeah, well, all these cool bands that I like, they used to do this, so I'm going to do that because that's what they do." And it becomes like uh, like we're playing a game. And then I think very often, sadly, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we end up becoming what we, we, we were initially mimicking. And um, yeah, you know, and, and sadly, I've seen a few people being casualties to that. Some people have managed to become casualties of that and come through the other side of it. But some of them, unfortunately, don't come through the other side. And yeah, I've never, I, I've, I've always had a thing where I was very defiantly myself. I think when I was younger, it could maybe sometimes even, it could maybe come across sometimes as being a kind of arrogance, but I've never drink, I've not, never drank alcohol as an adult. I've never uh, been interested in recreational drugs and parties. And I've had so many friends who, you know, I've had really major drug habits and major drink issues and things. But I wasn't interested in that thing. I was interested in being music, making music was my passion for music and my even bigger passion for communicating with other people. And that's something that still I love. I love the fact that, you know, people I've never met and might never meet have been in some way touched by something that I've done and you know and then there ends up being some sort of almost conversation or well, sometimes you know years later you'll hear that someone named their child after a certain thing because of something you created or we met at a concert or you both liked a certain record and they become a big part of each other's life or and these are the things very much attracted me. I, I feel I'm quite an introverted person in a lot of ways. I'm not someone that feels particularly comfortable at large gatherings and parties and um, I can be quite shy almost, which people find very contradictory because on stage I'm very much a performer. But I have a real need to communicate with other people, make a connection. It's really important to me. And I want, it's sort of like, um, I try to sing and put into music the things that I can't say, 
that I'd like to say to other people, other human beings who sometimes are finding things difficult and sometimes are finding things wonderful. So when did you first start making music? Um, when I first started was, um, again, I think a lot of performers, I've heard this of a lot of people like comedians saying this, um, because they were sort of shy and awkward, they sort of found this way of overcoming that. And they used to have little talent shows in my class at primary school when I was about seven or eight. And it was done alphabetically. And everybody would go up and sing a song and tell a joke and then the rest of the class would vote. And the person who did best would get to stay on for next week's show and be new people. And my second name's Stuart, so I was quite far down the line. And I was really, really nervous. And like, But at home I would be doing things like putting on little shows with like toys and things with my sister, just for like my mum and dad and my auntie and stuff. And, and I think my sister said to me, oh, you're good at like mimicking people that are on TV. And, you know, sometimes we sing funny little songs that you've made up. And so... I decided I would prepare. As I say, most people would go up and tell a joke. Why did the, what did the person say to the horse when it walked into a bar? Why the long face? And that would be the routine. <laughs> or they would sing some song in the chart with no music. But I was like, I'm going to go on and have an act. I'll start off with a couple of impersonations and then I'll do a song and then I'll finish off with... And I won that week. And I won every week you know, to the end of the year. And um, then I started getting sent around classes, like, oh, Douglas Shure's got a little show he's written for us. And, um, and I started getting, yeah, I started getting invited to lots of parties and um, at lunch times and things, people would have me up in the school wall performing for them. And I really liked it. I liked how it made me feel. And my stuff was never kind of cruel. And um, so I was writing a lot of songs then, but um, I have dyspraxia and that manifests itself in different ways. I didn't know what it was then, <clears throat> but I'm very uncoordinated and quite clumsy. And I couldn't do things like ride a bike. And also I went to guitar lessons for years and years, but my coordination was so bad, I just, you know, it was like every time I went in, it was like it was my first or second lesson for years. <laughs> you could see a guitar teacher go, why can't you get this? <laughs> and I could understand the principles and I could hear it, but just the coordination thing. But then fortunately, as often happens, I met up with friends who weren't as able to do things like stand up in front of people it's funny because they were more outgoing naturally, but they didn't have the chops to go up and stand in front of people and go, and here's my song, and here's this, and blah, 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 and feel look like I was kind of comfortable in that position. And they were musically really gifted in a very technical way. And so I like that thing of it becoming a thing like almost like a family where we all benefited from each other's strength and we all sort of needed each other and some people would see that as a weakness but I always think that's a, a great thing I always think the best things are even better when you can share them or when you can collaborate 
and make something unique that could never have came out of just this one person. So um, that would have been kind of late teens. I started to, you know, have friends that kind of go, and I imagine this bit played on a guitar. It would sound a bit like, and they would do it. And I go, that's even better than <laughs> that I heard it. And it became kind of intoxicating. And, and those are friendships that, you know, are still a big part of my life, you know, 40 years later or whatever. Yeah, it seems like you had a very um, encouraging group around you and you were all sort of encouraging each other to uh, to have these kind of creative outlets. Yeah, I think my friend Norman Blake, who's a musician who's played with me and makes his own music as well, um, said that one of the things to be in the Beam Expandits, which is my band, um, is you need to not, if you're being ridiculed, ridiculed. It's almost like if you are ridiculed, we have that as a badge of courage or a badge of honour. Uh, something like, oh, they don't understand, but we reassure each other. Yeah, it's fine behaving like this. If people laugh at you or shake their heads or saying you shouldn't be doing it, we're just saying it for, we've got our own agenda going on. Don't listen to them. Listen, listen to me. Listen to what your other friends are saying who actually believe in you. Would you say that these um, kind of musical and creative communities that you had were quite, um, have been sort of beneficial for your mental health? Very much so. And I mean, there's been times where I've been in real trouble. Um, I mean, I come from a very kind and loving parents, uh, parents, very kind and loving parents, but very kind and loving kind of family background as well. But my parents were a bit older and I guess, over a recent time when I was going through very difficult things, my father was probably gone. My mum was needing pretty much 24-hour care and things, so she wasn't able to give the love and support that she'd given when I was a lot younger. And um, the people who would come to my rescue and give me support and encouragement and... You know, even do things. There was like one time when I was in a real mess and um, I just wasn't able to look after myself particularly at all and be, be doing things like coming around and putting on the, the rubber gloves and cleaning up for me and stuff like that. You know, and people would be going, but that's a guy who's the lead singer and that. But that disappeared because there was something, there was a, a deeper thing that defined us all as being not like, I guess, like, part of each other's family or something like that so um yeah and it so it's been very very useful creative creatively creatively <laughs> creatively and um but it's also been very um helpful uh, through kind of dark times to have that kind of love and support and you know have people who are prepared to i mean of course as being a person who sees yourself as the person who's created some situation where people do need to run to your rescue. Rescue. You feel really terrible about that sometimes because you're like, oh man, they could have been having a nice time with no worries. And the next thing, they're having to drop everything. But it's not they're having to drop anything. They're choosing to, they want to be, you know, they, they feel some sort of, um, I think, 
almost gift in that they're able to help someone that they care about, as I would feel when you know I've been in that position. Yeah, of course, it's all about um, you know that kind of reciprocal nature of well, friendships really, I suppose, and and relationships in general. Um, would you say that? attitudes towards mental health have changed particularly throughout um you know your career with the bandits and um you know you said serious drugs came out in 1990 was it well 1991 it was written it ended up uh because of uh just bizarre logistical things to do with record labels it ended up coming out i think two years after that after it was actually recorded but yeah, I do think things, I think it's a strange thing because coming from the era that I kind of grew up in, and I do think a big part of um, what you are um, is defined by some of those uh, early things that were going around in the world. Things like um, a lack of understanding towards different kinds of sexualities, um, race, um, alternative kind of beliefs were all in a very surface level, much, um, obviously much less healthy and much less um, kind of welcoming towards these sort of things. And now, certainly on a surface level, nearly all of these issues uh, feel like things have really, really changed a lot through positive, and I think they have. But I think certain prejudices run deep. And because everyone you're seeing on your social media feed seems to be kind and groovy, and tolerant about certain things doesn't mean that there's not a problem with a wider world perception of these things, possibly in other countries, in other cultures, but there's a very good chance in your own uh, culture as well. These things aren't quite as um, uh, regarded in such tolerant ways as it may seem because most of us, I think, now, through things like social media, are surrounded uh, very often by people who think in similar ways or want to present themselves to thinking in similar ways a lot of these, these issues. But, yeah, we just need to see, I guess, how a lot of things are going in the world and forward thinking or people thought forward thinking nations regarding a lot of these issues it's like real backward steps happening and a lot of people seem to be going yeah the good old days bring back all these terrible these terrible terrible things and um you know it's like uh, just a random example but you know the fact that you're getting a bunch of countries reversing ever uh, laws on things like domestic violence you go but how can that be? Because all the people I know and I see around me know that that's an appalling thing and it's a serious thing and it shouldn't be 
suddenly, well, let's go back. <laughs> it was back in the old days when people wouldn't be taking to task for this. But yeah, so I think it's a strange one. You know, in some ways on the surface it feels it's much better, but I think there's a whole bunch of new issues that make um, mental health problems um, and kind of just living and um, navigating yourself through modern life more more difficult for people who are sensitive. You know, people who have maybe never thought of themselves as having mental health issues before, I think suddenly are finding uh, a lot of people are finding it in really, really difficult times. So, yeah, there's definitely advances. We can have these conversations. But if the conversations are only reaching a certain amount of people in society who already are quite right on and, um, you know, think about these things in a kind of tolerant manner, you really want them to be reaching um, kind of much wider demographic. Yeah. What kind of things, or do you know of any examples that have kind of helped those ideas to, to reach a wider audience? Well, I think when, I think certain celebrities or people in positions where they're respected by a lot of people, somebody like Stephen Fry, I think so many people look at Stephen Fry and think, well, he's incredibly funny, eloquent, smart. He seems like a good person, but he's very, very open to talking about really having life-threatening uh, mental health issues and crippling mental health issues. And I think when people like Stephen Fry or you know, other people of profile are able to talk about these things and not in that kind of rock and roll, isn't this kind of romantic and dark and it's got a dark glamour to it. Because <clears throat> they definitely never glamorise uh, these issues. They never go, you know, this is, this is something, this, you know, aspire to being suicidal, you know. Um, I think that that's really, really helpful. And I think, um, you know, I've tried to follow that lead. I mean, I don't have that kind of profile, but still, I know people who have said to me, you know, things like, oh, hearing you speaking about that thing or hearing that song, which I didn't necessarily think was that there, really made a difference. You know, uh, it was almost like you were speaking, you know, you you were speaking to me because they were at this um, pivotal point and they heard the song and that, that made a difference. That, that song ended up being the friend to... I guess, top them off the ledge or whatever, or made them go tomorrow might be better. So I think these things are very useful. I also think things like, um, you know, the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival, forums like that, and I mean, obviously, it's not just in Scotland, incredibly useful. Um, the Charity Health Musicians UK, you know, they have things like, you know, they've got a 24-hour 
free mental health line for people who work in the music industry, not just the musicians, but crew and promoters and things like that, where, um, you know, they're sort of saying, this is a major thing, we're there for you, and we're there to try and give you support if you're, you know. In the past, it would be things like you had repetitive strain disorder because you rolled in in a certain way all the time and things and you would get some sort of funding or support or sent to specialists by a charity like that but now I would say almost the biggest part of what we seem to be doing is aiming at uh, mental health issues uh, that people uh, in the performing arts particularly I guess with them music uh, are having to face and deal with and I think over yeah the last six months or so, that's really, really changed and became such a difficult thing. And I think a lot of people have probably, including myself, I mean, not, funnily enough, not over the last six months or whatever, I've not really felt the need for that kind of help and support. But it was times over the last five years that I wouldn't have been able to... I wasn't functioning well enough to really be able to look after myself. So they were paying for things like my rent and, you know, I didn't have nice winter shoes. When I say nice winter shoes, I don't mean really showy winter shoes, just shoes that would have kept my feet <laughs> dry and not um, cold. They would, you know, be able to give me money to basically help look after myself because uh, I guess part of your physical well-being and your mental well-being are so tied in with each other and also your environment. So if you're living in somewhere or you're having to live in the streets because you can't afford your rent and you end up getting thrown out or your feet are always getting wet and cold, all of these things um, affect your mental health and of course your mental health affects these things because sometimes you find yourself in these positions because uh, certain issues have gotten um, have got out of control. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that um, there's that support available for musicians because of course, um, I mean, we're really seeing the effects of it now, but um, people who are sort of self-employed or work in a kind of freelance role in the uh, like creative industries or in music more specifically there isn't really much of a safety net for people so it's it's great to hear that there is an organization that's kind of making sure that people um don't really fall through the gaps do you yeah. think that, that that could be something that was adopted more widely across the creative industries i think so unfortunately right now there's a real problem because when I was getting most of my support, there wasn't the pandemic thing. There wasn't like suddenly people unable to do any work or things that would be bringing in uh, money and also just making them busy. So kind of the busy mind, busy hand stops from going down certain rabbit holes. Um, so I was, my timing was good. I was able to, you know, they were paying for me for about two years to see a counsellor, as I say, give me a lot of other financial support, but also sending people out from the organisation saying, okay, how are you doing now? Is there other ways we can help you? Currently, 
organisations I think who exist like that are just really, really struggling because there's so many people, you know, so they have kind of hardship plans, but it, I guess that maybe, I don't know what the percentage was, say a few years ago it was like 5% of musicians were finding that hard to make ends meet. Now it might be 95% of musicians and people working in the music industry are finding that difficult and also finding that their mental health is taking a battering that they've never had in their life before. Of course, some people uh, who have maybe been vulnerable all through their life will suddenly find themselves in a place that's um, not conducive to good health for them as well. So I think it would be great, but unfortunately I think uh, these initiatives generally need uh, more government funding because right now I think most people's resources, you know, we can't, they've got I think a lot of kind of patrons who are very, very wealthy in the world of music, but um, that only will go so far. Yeah. Um, do you think that the kind of lack of funding has anything to do with the, the perception of arts or the value of arts? Very much so. I mean, there's lots of other countries. Even recently, you see they've been really making real initiatives uh, to give a lot of support. And I've also, just even over the years, I've had so many friends from other places in Europe and things who will sort of say, oh, yeah, I get this from the government while I'm working on these projects. And you're like, oh, what? <laughs> and... And not to sound, I see what more of these people are doing, but there are definitely things that have got much, much smaller audiences than a lot of um, people I know who are working as musicians here. And that doesn't make it to me less val valid that the, the audiences are smaller, but it's just um, interesting that in other countries, just the, the notion of someone as an artist and a creative or a musician is something that uh, certain governments would see as being a very important thing to support. And Britain, so much of uh, people outside Britain's love of Britain comes from the creative industries. And the amount of money generated by creative industries in Britain um, is so much more than so many other countries. You know, um, the amount of money that's just, that's still generated probably for Britain from the Beatles who existed more than 50 years ago or Shakespeare or, you know, so much tourism. So many people will come here because they love British music or they love theatre or we love um, the visual arts or ballet or whatever, we've got such a high, well, such a high regard for all of these things coming from Britain all around the world, you know, even more specifically Scotland with the things like Celtic Connections Festival and uh, that side of things, but there definitely feels like there's a real disproportionate and there always has been a real disproportionate um, 
level of support from the government. I think part of that um, is probably because um, a lot of the creative people aren't the people who went to the same public school as <laughs> certain political <laughs> figures. So it's a bit like, well, we're looking after the road, we're not looking after them. <laughs> but of course, that's a very short-sighted thing because you want to look after all of the people in your society. Um, and you may not see the direct connection, but there is a direct connection, you know. Um, if you see a lot of people kind of starving or homeless around you, I think most of us are not going to feel as good as we would if we didn't see the people having to sleep in doorways and we, you know, we could see more people able to feel good about themselves as much as possible and they look like they had good health and were well nourished and things like that. Even though we might not know them, we might never have a conversation with them, it would, it would still have a, you know, a trickle-down effect on us and or yeah. for life. Yeah, definitely. I think especially if you are already um, quite a sensitive person, quite an empathic person, um, other people's kind of situations or emotions can have uh, quite a large effect mm -hmm. on other people. Um, just to kind of come back to something you were speaking about earlier, um, I'd really like to know a bit more about your um, involvement in the Scottish Mental Health and Arts Festival. Mm -hmm. um, it just reminded me then when we were speaking about arts events and yeah, that's something I'd really like to delve into. How I first became involved, I think it was 2007. Um, I'm good friends with a guy called Billy Boyd, who's a Scottish actor. And um, although Billy was never in a band that I was in, myself and Billy and various people who'd been in BMX Bandits and Francis McKee, who is in the Vaselines and had been in an early band with myself, we were all friends when we were teenagers. And we went to the same drama group in a kind of Bridgeton, which I guess is a, at that time, was a quite run-down part of Glasgow. I mean, it's now had a lot to kind of improve the surroundings and the living conditions. But at that time, it was seen as a bit of a downtrodden place. And we were all from working-class backgrounds, so we didn't really have families who could afford to like be spending money to send us to drama classes and things like that. And um, we all became firm friends. And Billy, uh, I think, knew someone, uh, maybe there was a family connection or just through a chain of knowing different people who'd asked him to be involved. And Billy also makes music. Um, and I think Billy sort of said, well, I'll, I'll talk to my friend Douglas because, you know, his kind of signature songs about mental health and things, so he would be seem like a good fit. And um, so I got roped in to uh, perform at the first festival, and his band were also playing. And um, I think uh, Gail Porter was also involved in the first one. 
And um, the first one was not very well attended, but I think it was quite good because it was really pretty ramshackle and things like uh, the actual gig logistically could not have almost been run any worse. Technically, it was just, <laughs> it was like we had a PA in this room that held about a thousand people and it was the sort of PA it would be made to have, you could have in your back garden if you were having some friends around and you were doing karaoke. Just, <laughs> but I sort of thought after that night, um, right, this is going to go two ways. It's going to go, oh, well, that was a complete disaster. And because I think all the people performing were sort of nice people and weren't there for ego reasons, nobody was like going, well, I mean, I've never been so, you know, insulted and, you know, no one was giving anyone a hard time about it. So it was almost like, well, that's either just going to not happen again because... It was kind of viewed, it could be viewed almost as a disaster just because technically people couldn't hear anybody singing, all these sort of things, which you'd think. But it wasn't a disaster because and a lot of people made connections and a lot of people were talking to each other about things and exchanging positive ideas. And almost by the gig not going well, that was a very good learning thing to happen the first year because it was a bit like, well, if we do this next year, we know we need to think about this, this, and this. And then it came back next year and people said, oh, would you like to be involved again? And I was like, yes, I would. And I think we were like, oh, right. <laughs> they like, oh, okay. And um, yeah, just since then, not every year, but I've been involved in different things like introducing a screening of a movie that I felt uh, had something important to say, doing an introduction for things like that, um, performing music, doing a bit of talking to people. I think one year I was what was called the kind of keynote speaker for the event at the CCA in Glasgow. Um, and Gail Porter had been the one the year before and she was, <laughs> she was amazing. And a uh, really really inspiring and just really moving and funny and uh, wise and really truthful and that was great to be following her because again some people go oh man how many follow that because it just makes you go i'll have to be good <laughs> i'll have to raise my game and it's just always been something i don't know i just i feel it's just an important conversation to be having and maybe even a lot of people aren't ready to listen, but there are some people who will listen, and there'll be some people who will listen more because uh, they're a fan of or they're interested in someone connected to it. And, you know, it's that sort of thing of um, if someone comes along initially because they like a record I made or something, and end up actually going, well, actually, I've been in a bit of a difficult place and I've not really wanted to talk about it, and now I feel I maybe can, or I, I've got information about where I can talk to and who's what sort of... All of that's, I don't know, I just think it's too good an opportunity to turn your back on. 
Have you been involved in anything similar to this, uh, to the Scottish Mental Health uh, Festival? Um, I have done a little bit of similar stuff for Health Musicians UK as well. You know, I went to a, a big meeting that they had um, in Inverness. It was their big annual thing was based in Inverness. And um, you took part in a kind of panel about mental health and stuff and I've done little video things for them talking about these things and yeah and um, as I say they've give, given me so much support that uh, it's not like they go right we've given you support now it's payback they're, they're so not like that at all I've been the person who's been going can I please and sometimes they've went well I don't know if we should right now begin you to do that because but yeah, so it's um, again something I'm very keen on and, you know, I've lost friends um, to kind of mental health issues and it's not nice for the people who love them are still here and it's also not nice because you think, oh, there's all these amazing things that I could have enjoyed with them and you know, I could have been laughing with them at this and letting them hear this new record by whoever and sharing these things. And you can't do that anymore because we're gone. And I think the more this stuff's out there and people are aware that there are people who are there to listen and try and get support. And sometimes, unfortunately, some people just won't ever reach a place that they're you know, everybody around them could be giving them so much love and support and all that, but still be managed to, you know, fall off the edge or whatever and not make it through. But it's almost, it's a, I guess it's about increasing the odds. You know, it's better to have done everything you possibly could to make it more likely that people will be able to get help when you need it and that that'll make all the difference than just go well you know they're probably going to just like that's going to be their fate anyway and sometimes sadly it is but at least you've tried yeah um how do you think things like the scottish mental health and arts festival can uh play a role in that in sort of improving those odds as you were saying just think it's I think it's also things like, you know, one of the things I've done was going into high school, you know, so it's it's not just reaching a very small, sort of almost middle class right on um section of the public. It feels to me like it's got a really good outreach and it's going into communities and not just Glasgow or Edinburgh centric. It's you know, it's going to places where it could be a you know, somewhere where there's a fishing community that's going through difficult times or you know, different communities that have um a lot of problems are are the same but are maybe manifested and affected by different kind of localized um issues. So I think it's got a really good reach, you know, that um, 
is very, very wide. Now, even in, in Glasgow, I felt like the people that were attending things weren't all the same type of people. Of course, I don't really believe in the same type of people. I see everybody as being different, but I think you sort of know what I mean. There wouldn't all be people that would be kind of going to the same cool venues and the same cool bars. There were like a, quite a wide range of people from very different backgrounds. But we yeah. sort of hopefully had this link that they were wanting this to be improved. Did um, any of your experiences as part of the festival, um, did they change your mind or did you feel that you kind of learned something new from them? I think I think it did, but not in the way where it was like, oh, I I just used to think people were just like moaning about this and we should be just pulling up our socks. Not in that sort of way. So I can't, it's almost like I can't actually define the things. But I don't know if it was maybe it actually changed my mind or just reinforced things that I'd got instincts about. I sort of felt I believed, but then I would hear somebody like, you know, uh, going back to Gail Porter saying something and I'd go, yeah, that's interesting because that's what I sort of felt. And now I'm getting kind of evidence that's um, suggesting, yeah, this is actually the reality and this is... And also, I guess, the other thing, I guess, it has reinforced me that as so many of us have so many commonalities you know, and so many people who we might not think we've got much in common with um, have the same worries and fears. And sometimes they may manifest themselves in ways that we don't necessarily like or find, oh, why are they talking to people like that? Why are they so angry? Why are they acting like, you know, so dramatic or whatever? But a lot of uh, these things are, they come from, you know, fears and desires and insecurities that actually an awful lot of us share. Yeah. Um, do you find that hearing perspectives from other people, particularly um, at the festival, I know you spoke about um, Gail Porter and her mm -hmm. um, kind of keynote speech. Do you find that hearing other perspectives or even just perspectives that reaffirm things that you've already been thinking about do you feel that that can be um helpful around mental health issues yeah i think that the notion of you're not alone is an incredibly important message again that goes right back to what i was talking about music earlier it's that sort of thing of you listen to a certain record and suddenly that record becomes your friend who understands because it's like, that's how I feel. I thought no one understands. But this record made by people I don't know and I'll never meet feel that way. You know, as it could be a piece of poetry, as it could be a book, it could be a, a movie, all of these things. Just that thing that it makes a connection and you think my actions will affect other people and I'm affected by other people and the world's actions and we're all on this planet. 
So all of these actions, you know, all affect each other and we have an awful lot in common with each other. We sometimes may not like to think it, but we do. Yeah. Um, has um, mental health always been a theme in your work or was it something that kind of came along gradually? I sort of think it has because I think of where it came from and what I was wanting to achieve comes from that. So sometimes even it may not seem apparent. It, it definitely is part of it. It's at least part of the motivation for it to exist. Yeah. Um, and I suppose we've covered a lot of the um, topics around the festival. Um, so I suppose as a kind of... Um, a final question. I'd quite like mm-hmm. to ask how you'd like to see um, the relationship between uh, mental health and the arts change, say, in the next five to ten years. I think um, one of the things I sometimes worry about is, and this may seem kind of almost paid, but I think it's a it's used often as a mask. There's a certain amount of earnestness that I think is used when people are addressing certain issues to do with things like mental health and other issues as well. But I feel it's sort of alienating and off-putting for a lot of people. And I think these sort of issues should always be presented with a kind of warmth and a humour. And humour, again, I think that confuses people because I don't mean like jokes or comedy necessarily. And just these kind of natural things, I think that kind of artificial earnestness and worthiness can be very, very judgmental. And I think we get to remove sometimes from other people because we might have the whole thing of, well, they think differently about this one thing from me. We've got all this common ground, but there's this thing that separates us. And I think sometimes by demonstrating how to behave and how to be kind, and tolerant to other people is much more strong than almost making people into our enemies when they don't need to be made into our enemies. It's almost the sort of thing of, why do they currently think that? Maybe if they see other people, you know, who they might have negative ideas towards being kind and open and welcoming, and willing to listen and willing to discuss with kind of humour and warmth, that's going to bring more people in. And I think uh, all of these things, they just need to be a little bit more human human and a little bit more tolerant. Um, I think, yeah, too many people, um, when they get angry about an issue, they feel they need to go on to some sort of social media or some, have some platform to, to demonise everybody who has a very slight different view. And I think when you 
cast people as your enemy, it's very hard to pull them back. But if you cast them as saying, well, actually, I don't agree with that, and I think you're wrong, and look how we're behaving. We're not behaving in a terrible way. You're more likely to open people's eyes. And I think, you know, people going along to events and kind of going, oh, actually, I had a few laughs with it. And there was other bits that were really serious and moving. And then I met some people in the, you know, in the food area and they were really nice and warm and friendly and welcoming and all that. And I think, to be honest, that's something that has been done very well, but I think it needs to continue that way. And I, I do worry that currently the human race are getting really good uh, feels like a very current metaphor, but putting up walls and not just putting up walls, actually, but putting up walls between uh, people like, they're different from me, so we are cancelled. <laughs> I, I would rather try and win some people around. Some people you'll never win around, but um, kindness, kindness is king in yeah, well, with that positivity and, um, you know, aiming for kindness, um, I suppose before we close things off, um, is there anything else that you think I've missed or something that you'd like to cover? I ramble on so much, I probably feel like I've covered it. The last bit was a bit of a ramble. I wasn't even sure what the point was I was trying to make, but it was well-intentioned. Yeah, I think kindness and openness are definitely the way forward and mm -hmm. the way that we can hopefully solve things and um yeah improve things okay well it's been lovely to speak to you yeah lovely to speak to you too thank you so much for your time today and for no problem uh giving us all of your memories okay <laughs> okay thank thanks you. very much Bye take now. care you too